what if a young girl woke up one morning and her whole family was gone? And what if someone were sabotaging elevators throughout Manhattan? And once I have that what if, then I'm off to the races. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of the global ebook store Racked and Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Linwood Barkley. Linwood spent three decades in journalism before turning to writing books. And he has been prolific and successful ever since with 19 novels to his credit, New York Times bestsellers, translations into more than two dozen languages, millions of copies sold, and his books optioned for film and television. He is a master of the thriller, the slow reveal, the plot twist, and his most recent novel is no exception. As we do here at Kobo, I'll ask him about books from his past that were pivotal to his development as a reader and as a writer, and the ones he was reading as he shaped his most recent book, Elevator Pitch. Linwood Barkley, welcome to Kobo and Conversation. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. You spent 30 years as a journalist before leaving Daily Deadlines behind and switching to novels, but I understand that novels came first. They did. They did. And um, I was writing novels in my late teens and early 20s and was sending them out to all sorts of publishers, and we can all be grateful that none of those were accepted. But I have lovely rejection slips from some of the finest publishing houses around, you know, but they, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And, and in fact, before I was writing novels from about the age of 11, I was furiously writing what we would call fan fiction today. So I was, I got my dad to teach me how to type when I was about 10 on an old heavy manual royal typewriter so that I could write these things more quickly. And so at like 11, 12 years old, I was writing 30, 40 page novellas based on Mission Impossible, or The Man from Uncle, or Mannix, and all that stuff. So, but I just figured I'd come out of university and be a best-selling thriller writer, but since that didn't work out, I thought, where can a guy get paid money to write every day? And that seemed like newspapers, which was the answer to that. What kind of books were you reading when you were first writing those manuscripts? Was it all of the thriller genre, the, you know, the espionage tie-in? What, what, what did that reading landscape look like? Probably around the age of, like, I, mean, I started like a lot of kids, I was reading the Hardy Boys and so forth. And then uh, around about 10, 11, 12 years old, first of all, I was probably buying all sorts of, you know, those TV tie-in novelizations. I would, you know, if your favorite TV show, then you get somebody to write a novel based on them. And then I was, and once I kind of graduated from the Hardy Boys, I found Agatha Christie. And I read Agatha Christie like crazy. And then I discovered the Rex Stout's novels about Nero Wolfe, the big, huge, heavy detective who never leaves his brownstone. And Archie mm -hmm. Goodwin goes out and solves the crimes for him or brings back the information so he can solve them. And then around the age of 15, I discovered the writer that would mean the most to me was Ross MacDonald who wrote uh, the Lou Archer series of detective novels. So I would have been reading, I probably, all through my teens, the most of the stuff I was reading was probably Rex Stout and Lou Archer novels and, you know, other bits and pieces. I mean, I remember at some point in there, probably when I was 13 or 14, reading The Godfather and reading certain parts of it over and over again. And so that's, that was kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't by any means reading what we would call the so-called classics. Mm -hmm. I didn't get around to them. 
When writers decide to start writing, you, know, you start to approach the books that you read in different ways. You know, they're enjoyment, but they're also examples. Some people just absorb, and some people analyze. They take books apart. They try to figure out how they're put together. What was your approach? Were you an absorber or an analyzer? I think I was an absorber. I think that any analysis I was doing was at a kind of subconscious level. I think those Lou Archer novels had the greatest impact on me at that time. Uh, but I didn't read them analyzing how they were put together. Reading them told me that. I could read them and I think, okay, I, I can see what he's doing here. And when I was writing the novels that I was doing in my early 20s, they were very heavily influenced by that. But I didn't you know, calculate, figure out what the, how they were made. It wasn't like taking apart a Swiss watch. Mm -hmm. I just absorbed them. What was your beat as a journalist? Well, so I started, my first newspaper job was at the Peterborough Examiner in Peterborough, Ontario. And I was just, I covered everything that happened outside of the city. I was what they called their district reporter. And so because I was, I had lived around the area and I had attended Trent University and I had a car and so they thought, well, you're perfect to cover. <laughs> you are eminently qualified. <laughs> you're the guy to send out to anything that happens, any fast-breaking story out of Millbrook or Havelock Lindsay. or Ennismore <laughs> or Lindsay. You are the guy. Right. So I did that and I did that for two years and then I went to uh, paper doesn't exist anymore, a, a small sort of suburban uh, tri-weekly in Oakville called the Oakville Journal Record. And I was a general reporter. You know, I covered everything there. And that was kind of the end of my reporting days. In 1981, I went to the Toronto Star and applied for a reporting job. And they said, well, we don't really need reporters right now. What we need are really good copy editors. Do you have a lot of copy editing experience? And I said, sure. Yes, I do. Sure, I do. And so I got thrown on to, on three days of trial, working on the city desk and so forth, just edit copy. Mm -hmm. And I was competent enough that I got hired. So I was hired at the Star in 1981 as an editor and had all sorts of editing jobs. I was, I was a copy editor. I was assistant city editor. I was chief copy editor. I was news editor. Uh, I was the assignment editor, and I was the life section editor. I did all these jobs as an editor until 1993, when an opportunity came up to do a column, and that's and I went back to writing in '93. I was a uh, allegedly a humor columnist. Are there things that came out of that, both that daily discipline of editorial work, that you know, desire to kind of shape and form a story? that then came over into your work in writing novels? Hugely. I mean, I, I think that when you work, I mean, one of the most common questions you, you get when you go and do events is people ask, do you get writer's block? Which I think is just adorable because writers are somehow so special that we have an actual condition to describe just not getting around to working. And so you can't, you don't get reporter's block or columnist's block. When you work in a newspaper, you have to produce. So that's the first thing that working at newspapers taught me, was you, you sit down and you get to work. And so I've never missed a deadline. I tend to deliver books ahead of deadline. I always get revisions done very quickly. And I'm a little less, I think, precious about the work. Because, you know, I'm used to, I mean, I remember when I would work on, on the editing desk, and you would get the main story for the front page the next day that was 2,000 words, and it arrived at 7.30 and had to be rolling on the presses by 10. And at 7.30, it was a mess. And you had to take that story and rewrite it from top to bottom, and you had to do it in an hour. And I could do that. 
So now, when I have revisions, people say, oh, that's going to take you a long time to do this. It won't. The time of typing. <laughs> yeah, it's just not, I'm like, what would you, what are you going to do, sit there and stare at it? You know, like, it's, it's just, uh, it's work. So I think more than anything that, that working in newspapers for 30 years governed my work ethic and how I approached writing. Was there a particular moment where you said it's all novels from here on in and I'm, uh, I'm leaving the daily trade of newspaper work or was it a gradual transition? No, it was a, there was a turning point. I had done, my first novel came out in 2004 and it was a comic crime thriller called Bad Move. Starring, featuring a character named Zach Walker. And I wrote four novels about Zach. Bad Move, Bad Guys, Stone Rain, and Lone Wolf. And I did those four, and collectively, they were published by Bantam out of the U.S. And they collectively sold something like 60 copies or something, I don't know. And then I had an idea for a, another book. My agent had said, you know what, it's time to stop doing a funny series, and it's time to do something else, because those aren't clicking. And I had another book that I had an idea for that became a book called No Time for Goodbye. And that book came out in 2007. And first thing that happened was the offers we got for that book were significantly higher than any of that I'd had for the, the funny thrillers. Those books we sold for a considerable advance in the UK and in Germany. And everyone said, this is a great thriller. So when that happened, in fact, the book came out in Germany in translation before it came out even in English anywhere and was a huge bestseller in Germany. So I took a year off from the star at that point. I thought, well, I have a contract to write another book. So instead of having to try to find time to write a book between writing 130 columns a year, I will just write the book. And then during that year, things got even better. That book got picked by a book club, like a TV book club in the UK, uh, Richard and Judy it's called, and No Time for Goodbye became the single best-selling novel of the year in the UK in 2008. And Richard and, and Judy has immense power in the I UK. I know, as a, and in yeah. fact, I've had two Richard and Judy books. They had one two years after. So when that happened, I thought, I can leave the day job. So it wasn't a gradual decision. I just, I was, as I was doing the Zach books, I thought, well, this will be my life. I'll write columns and I'll try to do one of these funny thrillers a year. But then when that happened, I thought, I was confident that I could just write full time. And I, I was at the point, I'm very cautious and conservative sort of guy financially, and I thought, I won't feel safe leaving my salary job until the books can pay me more than the salary job. So there's a cushion there. And so that's when I left. So my last, the last columns I wrote were in 2006. And you sound relatively sanguine about making that switch from comic thrillers to thrillers. Yeah, darker stuff. Was it that easy a, a transition to make for you, or was there this sense of, oh, okay, I'd better try something else? No, because, I mean, the, we're still writing, I mean, in many ways, I think I was still writing the same kind of book. I mean, the four funny thrillers were still thrillers. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were, they were out and out thrillers, but there was a tone to them. Sure. And the character, the lead character, was, was a bit of, you know, what's the right word that I can't use on air or whatever, but he was a bit of a jerk a well-intended jerk. And so I thought it was just a question of kind of reining in those sort of comic tendencies. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I've been writing a humor column for, you know, 14 years. And so that was kind of my go-to There's a lot of muscle memory. Yeah, that's that. just kind of, yeah. So it was a question of every once in a while I, I would get a, my agent or my editor would say, this particular line or this part here 
is just a little too off the wall for what you would consider to be a dark, serious thriller. So I would brain myself in. I got, I learned after a couple books to sort of, you know, just how far to go. But it wasn't, that wasn't a difficult transition. Mm -hmm. Have you had any further evolutions in style over time as in terms of the, you know, levels of intensity, the levels of darkness, as you look across now, you know, and really sort of 16 books in that, uh, in that genre? That's a good question. I've never been asked that. I think that the books, have, for me, have become slightly more complex and layered since then. Mm -hmm. and, and for example, when I was doing the, the, the early novels, they were all first person and completely first person. And then as I started writing, I thought, well, that's very limiting because if, if it's all first person, I can never be with the bad guys and see what they're up to. So then I started a variation where I was doing first person alternating with third person chapters where I could change the point of view. And then I've ultimately kind of gone to just all third person. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of been a transition just in terms of point of view in the way I've done these books. And Elevator Pitch is, I think, a perfect example of that greater level of complexity that, mm -hmm. that you describe. There are a lot of moving parts to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a lot of balls in the air. Now. We have a philandering, bombastic, notorious New York businessman who's caught in a scandal. We have the journalist who's chasing him, a murder on the High Line Park, being investigated by a cop with PTSD, a Midwestern American extremist group, and a string of deadly elevator accidents that doesn't appear to have any connection to any of the above. That is, as you say, a lot of balls <laughs> in the air. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that book. When you're putting together a plot like that, that is layered, interconnected, a lot of different characters, what do you start with? Well, in, that, in the case of Elevator Pitch, you start with a significant incident. And that happens to be, in the first chapter, the plunging of an elevator that, you know, that, sh that should not have happened. And that's what really sets everything in motion. That's the first domino. And so that you just you flick that domino over and everything starts to go from there. And that's kind of true for most books that I do, is that I need an opening chapter that is a what if. Mm -hmm. What if this happened. Like in One Time for Goodbye, what if a young girl woke up one morning and her whole family was gone? And in this, what if someone were sabotaging elevators throughout Manhattan? And once I have that what if, then I kind of, I'm off to the races. And how do you build out from there? Is that characters kind of put into situations? Is that situations that you want to get to? What's the structure that you build on? Well, once I know what my what if is like, and, and as I say in the first chapter of, of Elevator Pitch, it's a bit meta, the first chapter of Elevator Pitch. You have a guy, an aspiring screenwriter who jumps onto an elevator and corners a producer to pitch his idea for a film. And of course he knows she may get off very soon, but then the elevator misbehaves and plunges and everybody who's in it is, is killed. And once I have that what if, I think, well, what, then I have to know before I start writing the book, what set of circumstances brought us to that point. Like, what is the foundation of the story? Who's done what and why are they doing it? I want to know that before I start. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of authors start working in and think, well, we'll figure that out as I go. But that's something I want to know. I can't figure out the whole plot, but I want to know what's the, the sort of instigating incident that drives this, mm -hmm. this thing. So once I know that, and then I start thinking, well, I'm going to need some crusading journalist, and I'm going to need some cops, and I'm going to need some jerk mayor, and I'm going to, I know, and it all starts to gel in my head of how it's going to come together. 
And, you know, I'll have a few pages of notes, of scribbles that I make when I'm trying to think how I'm going to do a book. But once I kind of know what the story is, then I just kind of get going. Do you like the research part of the process? It depends. I'm not a huge research guy. I set my books in worlds that I'm familiar with. I mean, they, they're not historical. They're not happening in faraway kingdoms or anything like that. They're set in, the, in worlds I know, and they, they star people that I know who are just regular people, whether they're teachers or they're just teachers or they're car salesmen or they're just, they're just regular people. So in that sense, I don't have to necessarily do a lot of research. And I'm not one of these guys who's really turned on by all the sort of CSI forensic stuff. That kind of bores me. I mean, I, chemistry was the only subject in high school that I bailed from. Because I'm more interested in people than blood type, mm -hmm. you know, and bone fragments. I care less about that. But in the case of elevator pitch, I did do some research in that I went, uh, it was arranged for me to go into one of the tallest skyscrapers in Toronto with the fellow who oversees them. And we went, you know, through the whole system and we would, you know, open up the door at the 20th floor and look up the shaft and look on top of the elevator. And one of the things that I thought, I knew I really had a book that I could, that was going to work when the fellow who was showing me around had in his hand what was like a large TV remote. And he said, and with this device, he said, I can control every elevator in the building and everything that it does just from this handheld gadget. And I went, wow, God, where would you get something like that? And he said, oh, you can get one on eBay for 500 bucks. Now, for a regular member of the public, that might be sort of an unnerving thing to know. As a thriller writer, I went, yes, that's great. <laughs> that just makes everything I'm going to write more probable. Now, in the real world, to be able to adapt that device and have an interface with this building's a little elevator system, that's no easy task. But someone probably could do it. That's yeah. what all I needed. Writing a single book is, I think most people feel, a fairly Herculean task. Writing 19 feels like a different order of magnitude. Has the way that you approach a new book changed over the course of your career? It feels like if you do 20 of something, you learn a few things. You'd like to think so. And yet I, make, I think with every book I make some new mistake and, have to, and learn again. But, you know, I think one thing that, I've, that has changed is, and I think this came from the fact that when I was doing the early novels, I was doing them at the same time as I was doing all these columns for the star. And so when I had an opportunity to work on the novel, I worked on it just furiously. So I'd sit down and think, I want to get 4,000 words done or 3,000 words done on this book today because this is my one shot at it. And I worked that way even after I stopped writing the column. I worked that way for quite a long time. And then finally I thought, why am I killing myself? So my goal now is to go up to my office and write 2,000 words on average. So if you can get 2,000 words done a day, that's 10,000 in a week, and in two and a half months you have a first draft. So I kind of work at that pace, and then that would, of course, supposedly mean that I have nine months of the year off, and that hasn't happened yet, But because there's so <laughs> many other things that are involved. But the thing is, your opening comment was that isn't sort of daunting or whatever, you've done 19, you know, you've done 19 books. And if you look at it differently, if you just think, I have to get 2,000 words done today, I don't have to write a whole book today. I just have to get 2,000 words done. Tomorrow I'll get another 2,000. And in a week or so, I'm going to see that I've got 50,000 words done. So you go at it a chunk at a time. I mean, it's, it's kind of like building, you know, it's building a skyscraper. But, it, you know, you do the first floor, and then you come back and you do the second floor. And it's kind of like that. So you just have to, if you think about it as having to do a whole book every year, that you think, gosh, I can't do that. But you have to break it down. It's just like with writing columns. 
I had to do 130 or 40 columns a year. That sounds horrendous. But the way I would approach it at work was, I have to write a column for tomorrow. And then in a couple of days, I have to write one for Thursday. And that's the way you look at it. You mentioned that there are a lot of other things that fill up that year beyond the three months of writing. How has an author's job changed over the course of kind of the last 15 years that you've been in this? It feels like authors are being asked to do more, to oh, yeah. kind of be more in the process of getting books sold. Yeah, and it's, it's a bit daunting. You know, 20 years ago, you'd write a book and you'd send it off and they'd publish it. Maybe you'd do a little tour somewhere and you couldn't go on Amazon or some site every day and see just how badly you were doing or how good you were doing. You couldn't your, do Your that. daily self-esteem barometer. You, that's right. You, and you weren't getting tweets from fans saying, oh, you know, I love your book, and then you feel obliged to respond, which is, of course, very nice that they would do that. And, and Facebook messages, and, and of course, email means that, you know, you can't get through a single morning without 10 requests to do this or do that. And then can you just do this email interview, and can you just do this? And so a lot, of, and, and your publishers are saying, you need to be on Goodreads, and you need to post all the time about what you're reading on your Facebook author page. So the business of promotion, so much of it has sort of slid and sort of fallen onto the author. And it can be kind of, it's time consuming and, and kind of exhausting, sometimes somewhat soul destroying. And then the flip side is sometimes it's really, you know, it's nice that fans can connect with you. So you actually get to hear from people who like your books and that's nice. But it can be very draining. Does that level of engagement change the work itself? When your fans are able to reach out to you essentially on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis, is that a different voice in the back of your head than when you see them once a year when you're on the road for a book tour? I don't, at least for me, I don't think it changes the books at all. The actual product, I don't think, changes. I just think it affects me more just when I finally am able to write. I'm sort of like, I feel I have to get something, I have to get something done because I've just lost an hour on Facebook or I lost an hour doing an interview or lost. So, I, so it's, it's really a time management thing, I think, in a lot of ways. But I don't think it changes the product, at least not for me. You've always been interested in TV and film in connection with your books. And we're in what some would say is the golden age of television, mm -hmm. and that comes with this insatiable hunger for adaptations of books for the screen. And has that created new opportunities for you? Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting you should mention that because I think, you know, in the past, I think a lot of authors might feel that we're in competition with each other, which of course I suppose is still true, but there's always room for one more book. But I think that now that you can consume television in the way that you consume a book, like one chapter after another, you don't have to wait a week. I think that, as a writer of novels, is the competition. I have to write something that's engaging enough that you won't sit down and watch five episodes of Ozark. Mm -hmm. And so that's, and when I was at a big thriller writers conference a couple of years ago, and we were all sitting around the writers, and we were saying, oh, have you seen Bodyguard, and have you seen this, and are you watching Breaking Bad? And then we realized that none of us were talking about books. <laughs> and that was troubling. Mm -hmm. But to more directly answer your question, yes, the, the, I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago called Never Saw It Coming. I wrote a screenplay adaptation for that, and we got that made into a movie on a modest budget in Canada a couple years ago. It's now streaming on Crave. It's got Emily Hampshire in it and Eric Roberts. So I was involved in that. They did make a six-part series out of my book, The Accident, in France, and it's really good, too. But I didn't, obviously I had no involvement with that. But I have, in the last couple of years, been involved in adaptations of other 
books of mine that so far we have not seen. Mm -hmm. This is the difference between having a book contract and having a contract to work on TV stuff is that the book will come out. Right. But TV stuff, like, who knows? You know, I, I, a couple of years ago, I was working with a guy, a director of two different, two Bond movies, who wanted to make a six-part series out of one of my books and wanted me to write all six episodes. They flew me to London. We met at the network and met him. And I spent six months writing the 12 drafts of that first episode. And then finally the network went, no, nah, I just, I don't think we'll do it. And so I'm getting practice. My Promise False Trilogy is in now development for a series and I've submitted the second draft of the pilot, but it all moves glacially. What else do authors need to be aware of when they go into that process beyond the kind of message in a bottle quality of not knowing if it will reach the sender? Yeah. Well, if you're not someone who can handle input from others, I would say don't get into it because so many people weigh in with suggestions and what they think. Everyone's putting an orient about what they think the episode needs or what this character needs and so forth. And even with the thing that I'm working on for my Promise False Trilogy, we've made a lot of changes from the original novels and a lot of them have been my proposals. I've thought if I had thought of this when I was writing the novels, I would have done this. So this is an opportunity to take that concept and have some fun with it and do something else. But if you consider every word that you've done is precious and you don't want to have to work with others, or if you don't play well with others, don't get into it would be my advice. And if you, you know, and if you still have a soul that you would prefer not to be destroyed, that another reason perhaps not to do it. <laughs> when you get a spare minute, what are you reading for your own enjoyment right now? I read a lot of different stuff. I don't, I don't, I read, don't read as much of the kind of stuff that I write, as you might think. It kind of varies. I'm trying, you know what I'm reading right now? I'm, I had never read the two collaborations between Stephen King and Peter Straub that they did back in the 80s, The Talisman and I think Black House. I'm reading The Talisman right now because I bought these beautiful little hardcovers, I found them, and I'm finally getting into that. But I read, I mean, I read a lot of crime fiction. I tend to read crime fiction, write, crime writers who I think are way better at this than I am. So there's a lot of them. And, you know, I'll read James Lee Burke and George Pelicanos and, uh, you know, people who I think are really superb at this. And generally because of the writing and the characters are what draw me. But, I mean, I'll read, I mean, I recently read this huge biography on Mel Brooks that was fascinating. I mean, you know, I still think he's funny, but I don't like him at all anymore. And so I kind of mix up with what I read. This book has a corrupt businessman slash politician, homegrown extremists, and crashing elevators. Are you working through some of your own anxieties here? <laughs> well, not as much in that book, perhaps, but I certainly have in others. And I think all of, all of us who've had kids, mine are grown now, go through a lot of the same anxieties, particularly through teenage years. And a lot of those, those parental anxieties have worked their way into a lot of my earlier books. And even the Zack Walker character that, who was starred in those comic thrillers, he was kind of angst-ridden, an anxiety-riddled kind of person, and he's basically me unchecked. <laughs> and what does purely unchecked look like? What are you trying to tamp down? That uh, well, um, certainly in Zach's case, Zach was this uh, a safety safety phobia kind of guy, and he was always involved in what I would call instructive theatrics to make other people behave more responsibly. And so he gets in the most trouble. It would drive him crazy. I mean, those books all came from 
Going grocery shopping with my wife and observing how she would always leave her purse, usually open, sitting in the little kitty seat of the shopping cart, and would wander down to the end of the aisle to pick out the spaghetti sauce she wanted to get. And I would see the purse sitting there and it would drive me insane. I would think, why don't I just take out my wallet and drop it in there too so whoever goes by can have everything. And I thought, I should teach her a lesson and pretend to steal her purse so she would never do that again. But I didn't do it because I wanted to live. And, but I thought, but what if I did do it? And that's how Zach was born. Zach does that. And it would have been really great if he had been at the right shopping cart, but he wasn't. And so those kind of anxieties work their way into the, but you know, I kind of extrapolate, I sort of think, what are my worst behaviors and how can we put them in print, make them even more objectionable? Excellent. Linwood Barkley, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, great fun. All of the books that you have heard on this episode can be found by going to www.kobo.com slash conversation. All of the books that Linwood has mentioned should be there as well. You can go to any of your favorite podcast locations to find more episodes of Kobo and Conversation, and also be sure to check out our sister podcast, Kobo Writing Life, which gives you all of the ins and outs about life as an independent author. Thank you for joining us.